Hello, and welcome to Suite 212 Extra, a new strand of Suite 212 covering subject matters that don't fit into our regular show on Resonance 104.4 FM for whatever reason. This first episode of Suite 212 Extra picks up on a subject that we covered recently, in fact in May's edition of The Resonance Show, with Mitch Abador talking about the relationship between the radicals of May 68 in France, and particularly Paris, and avant-garde film. So we're picking up from here by talking to Paul Clinton, who's recently curated an exhibition in Paris called Forbidden to Forbid, which picks up particularly the sort of queer strands of May 68 and after, how they intersected with socialist, communist and radical politics, and with the feminist movement in France in the 1970s and beyond. Paul Clinton is a writer, critic and curator based in London, with a particular interest in sexuality, politics and culture. He was associate editor of Freeze for four years and continues to write there and for many other publications, as well as being an associate faculty member at Central St. Martins. He's previously curated exhibitions including Duh, Art and Stupidity at the Focal Point Gallery, Art Cinema at the Kunsthalle Charlottenburg, as well as this show, Forbidden to Forbid, at Goswell Road, an artist-run space, and the Gallery Belise Hurtling in Paris, which runs until the 13th of July publication to accompany the exhibition which Paul edited is being published the day before. He's currently working on a book-length essay called Other Hunting which will be published by Mar Bibliotech later this year. Paul, welcome to the show. Mm. Forbidden to Forbid takes a phrase and two artists associated from the era of sexual liberation after 1968, Pierre Kleslovsky and Lionel Soukaz, to argue that from the start many people associated with that moment were deeply ambivalent about the value of transgression and troubled the idea, important to many at the time, that sexual desire was a revolutionary force, the unleashing of which would threaten structures of labour, family, moralism and social reproduction. In the exhibition, these figures are included along with works by contemporary artists Arit Ashery, recent winner of the uh, Jarman Award for Experimental Film, Beth Collar and Giles Round, who question the legacy of sexual liberation, as well as archival materials from the director Claude Feraldo and the Punk Bazooka Graphic Design Group. I would like to start off by talking about some of the intellectual influences over the May 68 generation, mm-hmm. and particularly the sort of queer strand that we're going to talk about throughout the show. So yeah, the slogan Forbidden to Forbid was taken from uh, one of the many pieces of graffiti that appeared around Paris during the um, insurrections of May 68. It's quite Lacanian slogan, mm-hmm. and um, you know, Jacques Lacan, uh, who was on the fringes of the Surrealist movement in the 1930s, was an influence on the May 68 generation and on post-war French theory, which I think is another thing lurking in the background here. But I think there are, you know, there's quite a diverse range of intellectual and cultural influences on this generation, aren't there? I'm thinking of the the French Surrealists, particularly in literature, and their sort of aims to liberate desire, but particularly liberating desire for heterosexual men. Mm-hmm. Verso published a volume a few years ago, the basically the sex, Investigating Sex, it was called, and it's the sexual congresses that the surrealist writers, uh, some of the artists, but most of the writers, held in interwar France. And these congresses were quite notable for the fact that nearly all of the attendees were men. Occasionally you'd get, like, Nochelle Luard, Paul Luard's wife, or one or two other women present, but mostly men, and mostly uh, heterosexual men. Mm-hmm. The one kind of queer member of the Surrealist, René Crevel, who I think was 
was bisexual but primarily interested in men. Uh, he was only rarely present. And there's a quite repressive edge to a lot of these conversations, actually. Uh, André Breton and Benjamin Perret, the writers and poets, uh, were sort of against almost everything. Uh, they were very homophobic. They were quite misogynistic, I think. Um, they actually had a very constrained view of sexuality and what they considered acceptable. And then sitting opposite them, you often had uh, the poet Jacques Prévert and the novelist René Cugno, who were basically for everything, including rape. At one point, they're asked, what do you think of rape? And Perret and Breton say, we're dead against it. And Prévert and Cano say, we're for it. And you get the feeling that at that point, Prévert and Cano are just taking a kind of contrarian position. Um, but I think what links the Surrealists to this generation that we're about to talk about is their sort of, their attempts to merge Marx and Freud. Mm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's what you're saying about the, um, on the one hand, this will within those discussions towards a greater liberation of sexuality, you know, they were against church, they were against state moralism in many ways. And yet, there's so many prohibitions against non-normative sexualities as, as they get grouped together. It's super interesting. It's actually the historian Michael Richardson argues that what Breton was trying to do, in a certain sense, was to have a purer heterosexuality. So in a certain sense, that you ought to have greater freedom as a heterosexual, particularly a heterosexual man. And that meant re reducing or removing guilt from heterosexuality. But in order to do that, meant also separating off the notion of desire from all of those things one ought to feel guilty of, including homosexuality. Um, so in a certain sense, there's almost a kind of racial purity element to it, you know, if you, if you want to think of it that way. And, and Breton was a, a, a moralist. I think one of the other things to say is that um, Crevel's a very interesting figure um, when opposed to Breton, because um, Breton's a much more doctrinaire Marxist in many ways. And so in certain sense, there's that notion of homosexuality as a kind of, and this will come up a lot, um, bourgeois individualism, you know. And, and so That's the influence of Stalinism as well, I think, yeah. For sure. And so the, 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 the wanting to cast off the taint of that um, towards a, a purer, more, more kind of communal and, and, and not... Um, uh, moralised version of heterosexuality was really one of the things that Bre that bro drove Breton um, and particularly also drove him in his, his very homophobic exclusions of figures like Crevel. I mean, they were at various points pushed out of the Surrealist group. Yeah, I mean, Crevel committed mm. suicide in 1935, mm. partly... I mean, obviously, he had lots of, uh, lots of uh, quite long-term issues that come up a lot in his uh, novels, which I recommend you go away and read. But uh, Crevel had two problems towards the end of his life. One of them was um, trying to pull the Surrealist movement away from an alliance with Stalinism and towards maybe a, a more kind of liberal communist position. And the other was, yeah, his clash with Breton over the issue of his sexuality. You can, you can find these these kind of gaps in the sort of heterosexual surrealist position. Of course, there was Breton was very interesting, Claude Cahun, who famously wrote in Disavows or Cancel Confessions that neuter is the only gender that always suits me. 
Um, so Bresson had a complicated relationship with Cahun and a grudging acceptance, I think, of the photographer and artist Pierre Molinier. Mm. I mean, um, Molinier's an interesting figure again because um, unlike Cahun, you know, Molinier, as far as we're aware, was um, in his uh, sexual practice um, exclusively homosexual but all but in um his art practice there's a transvestism a, a, a strange transvestism that often involves having one being having several limbs or several arrangements it's never sure whether the figure the subject is one or divisible but um certainly um one sees from various bits of writing that the translation of of Molini's sexuality into a heterosexual matrix, you know, this notion of being an invert, of, of being a woman trapped inside a man's body, that hoary notion that still gets trotted out today for all sorts of sexual subjects, was one that at least allowed him to be accommodated for a while. It was sufficiently heterosexual. <laughs> I mean, Crevel's an interesting figure, though, a much more radical figure, if you want to talk about his relationship to 68, which was that, I, I, as far as I'm aware, many of his books have, um, since his death had fallen out of print, and they were revived um, and reprinted by certain radical presses after 68, but primarily because of the association between art and communism and his anti-fascist elements. The sexuality portion of it, which was not in, in the first flourishing of 68, a central, the homosexual part of it was not as part of the central protest, was sort of a sideline. And yet these texts really incited some of the figures that we'll talk about later, like Guy Hockenheim, who was a really crucial figure in gay liberation in France, and Monique Vitique, the feminist philosopher. And I think Crevel's a really interesting kind of proto-queer figure in that way because he argues against assimilation. You know, this is before there is even a kind of popular um, gay rights movement. He's arguing against the idea that homosexuality should be should simply model itself on heterosexual love. And he also argues about reclaiming the body itself from heterosexual models of penetration and receptivity and wants to imagine the body as offering many more erotic and identity possibilities. And and, and those are really crucial ideas for later on. It's notable with, with Crevel and Cahun that you can locate them within a kind of queer, sort of modernist and or queer avant-garde tradition in France, which I think was much more present than in modernist movements in the UK or in Italy or Germany or Russia and the USSR for a variety of reasons. You know, you can trace a line through kind of André Gide, Marcel Proust, Ramon Roussel, Jean Cocteau, who was you know famously absolutely despised by André Breton. Uh, so was uh, André Gide, actually, was uh, the subject of an extraordinary poem by Benjamin Paré. I think it's called something like André Gide's Conversion. Uh, and the closing stanza is something like, yes, you'll have communism, monsieur comrade Gide, the sickle in your guts, the hammer down your throat. Um, and uh, I do wonder how much of that hatred was inspired by... Um, by Gide's sexuality as much as anything else, as with as with Cocteau. Mm. But I think maybe the most productive figure to talk about here, somebody who was running parallel 
to the um, Surrealists in the 30s and 40s. Of course, Jean Genet. Mm-hmm. Certainly. I mean, I think it's important to throw, I, I don't know if you mentioned Proust, um, maybe you did, but to throw Proust in there as well. I, I mean, yeah. certainly in relationship to Genet, um, the... These are all ambivalent figures, but you're totally right that literature um, holds a very peculiar and overtly galvanising place in the French gay political story in a way it doesn't in the Anglo-American context, for example, not not quite that central way. Certainly, you know, Gide and Cocteau were very unfashionable figures in many ways, um, particularly for later gay liberation movements, because of their references, along with Proust, to the classical world, they smacked of the bourgeois, you know, Gide made an argument for the naturalness of um, homosexuality in Corridon, Cocteau was very much associated with the fae and the frivolous, but also it has to be said, whether fairly or not, with the taint of collaboration during the war. And all of those things also colour the reception of those figures, not only they're associating with a certain hope mundane kind of um, culture that they uh, that Cocteau certainly had not been quite the friend of the resistance that he should have been and that was also seen as as not great. Genet is a really interesting figure. Uh, On the one hand he became incredibly important later for the gay liberation movement partly because um, having uh, been through the a system of uh, many of his novels look at his early career as a thief and male prostitute and he himself had gone through a number of foster homes but also borstal and juvenile delinquent um, prisons and homes as a young man and indeed um, his first novels were written whilst imprisoned so um, Genet is a really fascinating figure because he in a certain sense becomes this pivot on which one can claim that homosexuality is not a bourgeois perversion you know it isn't associated simply with an excessive cultivation that makes one fey but it comes from the streets and the notion of the homosexual as outlaw is really central to Genet's um, literature and philosophy but it's the same notion of outlaw that makes him a particularly ambivalent figure Although that idea of transgression that comes with him is really important for later figures like Hockenheim and others who want to find the subversive and revolutionary potential in their sexuality, Genet's primary influence was a novelist who's much forgotten and not much translated into English called Marcel Joandou, um, who was a Catholic and uh, argued in a book called Of Abjection for homosexuality as a kind of saintly martyrdom, that you've been given a sin which you cannot budge, and that is your cross to bear on earth, that that calls you to a higher ascetic discipline. And this gets reversed in Genet to argue for a kind of saintliness of theft and of sin, but also, most crucially, of homosexuality is primarily and, and essentially about betrayal. And so in in Genet, what you get is even a transgression of transgression. It's not that he is a homosexual and therefore part of a class of the lumpen proletariat and the outlaws, that he turns in his lovers, he betrays his lovers in order to get a kind of uh, autonomy. 
So, it, although he's a really interesting figure of this kind of racy transgression, you can't really build the kind of collective politics that many of the later gay liberation movements out of his thought, because it's all about betrayal. It's not yeah, about the, solidarity. Mm. The prison context is absolutely crucial as well, like even mm. the more sort of utopian or fantastic elements of Genet's work. Mm. One of the things that has always appealed to me about Genet's writing is the the idea of prison as a society that has potentially utopian elements, but they are only elements. And, you know, the, the totality is, of course, remains repressive. Yeah. I mean, I particularly like the conception of, of queerness in Genet's works. You know, these these societies that he creates, these fantasies that he creates at points... You know, there are all sorts of competing sort of visions of queerness and things that we'd call gay now, some things that we'd call transsexual or trans or non-binary. There's quite a big spectrum there. And I think that's also mm. an interesting strand to pick up I mean, as we to talk about the post-68 generation. Definitely. I think that idea of identity, um, and I think one of the other things to say about betrayal within Genet is that it becomes a self-betrayal, i.e. not being pinned down. So there's this sliding in and out of gender identities, out of relationships. Sometimes a homosexual relationship is based on an inverted heterosexual coupling. Uh, Other times it transcends that and goes somewhere else. And certainly this idea of identity is fluid and as um, socially constructed, but also as the prison as a kind of model, both of a utopian society, but also of a society of surveillance that tries to categorise its subjects. All of those become really influential for intellectuals later on, um, such as Michel Foucault. I think the other thing to say about Genet is that he was already... By 68, a well-known public figure, he hadn't been in prison for for over a decade, but uh, he wasn't necessarily all that directly involved in the um, French sexual politics, um, particularly in Paris at that time. But one way that he was very involved, he had gone to Palestine to uh, meet with the Palestinian Liberation Organisation and also to meet with the Black Panthers. And he managed to convince, um, through uh, discussions, Hugh Newton of the Black Panthers, a sort of cardinal, I think he called himself, of the Black Panthers, um, that uh, homosexuals were um, revolutionaries in as much as they were hated by straight white (laughs) society. And so Newton then makes this amazing speech in the late 60s Um, in favour of a solidarity with homosexuals. And when that gets translated back into French and is published in Jean-Paul Sartre's Maoist um, magazine 2, that's a really important moment where the already existing radical gay groups suddenly have an authority, a heterosexual authority, saying homosexuals are revolutionary, this is part of a revolutionary struggle. And that, so in, in, in an indirect way, as well as being a kind of figurehead of the underclass, Genet's also important. Yeah. Another interesting thing that Genet does in this moment that we're talking about is, you know, through his through his interest in the Black Panthers, that leads him to Angela Davis mm-hmm. and the feminist filmmaker Carol Rosopoulos. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think maybe her first film is a, a documentary of, of Genet talking about Angela Davis. So you have Genet not just linking back to kind of sexual dissident elements before and during the Second World War, 
and being a kind of figure of kind of queer resistance, but also providing a direct link to like anti-racist movements and feminist movements. Mm. Um, I want to move the conversation on a bit now. Mm. Um, there are some other interesting things in the sort of cultural background mm. to May 68 that also link us back to this precedent. There are two in particular movements that we can link back to the surrealists mm -hmm. and linking back to the sort of heterosexual surrealists we can just mention passing the situationists who i think you know guy de uh, organizes the situationists in a quite similar way to bresson organizes the surrealists through kind of constant purging through this kind of effort to combine artistic collective production and political organization they kind of, you know, they go in opposite directions, really. This situation has become more of a sort of political movement, I think, than the Surrealists ever did. But then you also have the Panic Movement, which mm -hmm. is actually mostly people who aren't French. A lot of them are Spanish or uh, South American uh, exiles. Um, the writer Copy, the dramatist and filmmaker Fernando Arabal, the filmmaker Alejandro Hodorowsky, who I think all of whom do end up in France at some point in the sort of mid to late 60s, at least for a time. And they're sort of trying to reclaim surrealism both from commercialism and assimilation, you know, particularly surrealist visual art had very much been incorporated into the language of advertising. Uh, you know, Salvador Dali had made films with Hitchcock. I think he worked with Disney as well. You can make your own kind of far-right alliance comment there. Um, but, you know, very much been incorporated into mainstream film, the language of advertising. So some of these writers, as well as the French author and filmmaker Roland Topor, were also trying to sort of bring a queer presence back into surrealism and bring this development of political radicality back into it that was often itself quite queer. Um, Copy's drama about Ava Perón, which is a real favourite of mine, uh, in which he stipulated that like a drag queen or a transsexual woman had to play Evita uh, in much the same way that um, in Jean Genet's play, The Maids, uh, the maids had to be played by cross-dressers or trans, trans women. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is why Madonna does it later in film. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> for the Evita, yeah. And Copy is a really interesting figure because alongside the plays and involvement in the panic movement, most of his money was made by being a cartoonist for mainstream newspapers like Nouvelle Observateur. But even into those, he would sneak discussions of gender politics and particularly also of transgender sex work that were really um, pointed to the hypocrisies of a bourgeois society that wanted to condemn whilst also benefiting from the services of um, these figures. And, and so he's a really interesting figure who would then go on to be very involved in things like um, Gay Pied, which was the a weekly, then became Gay Pied Hebdo, which was um, a weekly newspaper of the um, gay liberation movement in the 70s, um, most famous, in fact, for a celebrated uh, cartoon called, uh, it would be translated as something like um, Jouissance or Power, that argues that actually behind every um, powerful man who's subjugating another is a man who really wants to fuck that, <laughs> that man. So, so th this, this building into an anti-authoritarian politics, discussions of sexuality, um, Copy is a really pivotal figure for sure, much overlooked.
Just very quickly mm. in passing, I'd like to mention some aspects of the Nouveau Roman, the post-war mm-hmm, mm-hmm. literary movement, yeah. notably because Alain Rob Grier's works, mm. of course, intensely sexual and mm. intensely heterosexual, mm. and in some ways very authoritarian. Rob Grier himself, when speaking of the Second World War, said, I was on the wrong side. Well, Rob Grier is an interesting figure because he influenced two similarly ambivalent figures and I think maybe slightly later in the podcast we might want to go into a bit more detail but one of which is Tony Duvert um, who is uh, was a novelist is now deceased was a novelist who became very celebrated even when the Prix de Medici um, for one of his novels nominated by Roland Barthes and he definitely worked in that kind of glacial Brechtian anti-psychological and anti-expressive model of the uh, Nouveau Roman. But his um, novels were primarily around pederasty, and that's a really crucial dynamic within gay liberation politics in France, you know, that that, um, the term for homosexual was the same as for pedophile or pederast. Um, And um, figures like Duvert, who really... um, in many ways, use the advantage of the Nouveau Roman in many politically progressive ways in order to think of a kind of desire that wasn't anchored to some subject position. So this idea that that um, what you desire, who you desire, doesn't tell you the truth of who you essentially are. You know, nobody's either homosexual or heterosexual. That kind of floating and omnipotent subject position is allowed by something by the Nouveau Roman. But of course, as in works like Rob Grier's, what you might not immediately pick up on is various forms of potentially kind of troubling sexual aspects. So many people think, for example, in Rob Grier, of novels like A Sentimental Novel, his final one, which is very explicitly about child rape and murder, as being very separate from the rest of the Nouveau Roman history, but it's not at all. The Voyeur, one of his earliest books, is entirely about a fantasy of murdering a child who's resisted sexual urges. So in many ways, the detachment of the Nouveau Roman allowed for other conceptions of desire, but it also allowed for materials that wouldn't otherwise be published and that might otherwise be more stringently debated to also be snuck into the literary canon. Another figure is Renaud Camus, who later, in around 1979, wrote a book called Tricks, again very celebrated by Bart. And actually, Camus for many years posed as Duvert to get his entree into the literary um, scene. It's a very bizarre thing to do, to pose as this um, controversial figure. But Camus is making... His novels are not pederastic, but they're kind of a a clinical litany of sexual encounters and that, that don't sensationalise, that also show no kind of guilt or shame. There's no sense of a tortured self. All of that's mediated through some of the long effects of the Nouveau Roman, which makes him a very important figure. But in many ways, like Rob Grier, it also allows for a certain masculinism, that kind of detached male viewer. And in fact... Um, Camus was very 
outspoken in the 1970s about purging the gay liberation movement of faggots, of, you know, effeminate people, of trans women, of women. And one thing that I think is important that we should get onto when we talk about 68 is to discuss this idea that um, 68 was much as much an anti-normative as it was a left-wing movement. And that also therefore allows for all sorts of not necessarily progressive positions. Yeah, well, let's let's hmm. start talking about May '68 yeah. now. Um, I wanted to maybe bring up George Bataille, but I yeah. think we've maybe spent enough time on the um, the precursors to, to May '68. But I think Bataille is just a figure that we should we should very briefly mention as another yeah. influence on sort of literary treatments of sexuality hmm. here. Hmm. He is important. He's certainly important for Klosowski, who is in the exhibition. Bataille was rejected by almost anybody he was associated with in many ways. You know, Breton was not his best, biggest fan, nor was Sartre or the later existentialists, many of whom sort of thought of Bataille as a, as, as a quasi-fascist mystic in many ways. I mean, they, you know, that's what he was accused of, which is quite unfair. But certainly within Bataille, there's some notion... That, and it's avowedly heterosexual, that through um, sexuality you get access to some headless, authentic experience. So that um, sexuality, moments of madness, moments of, of hysterical laughter, have an effect of suspending the ego and allowing oneself an access to some form of authentic experience below the social structures of self. And that kind of idea that you find in figures like Wilhelm Reich, the kind of dissident psychoanalyst who's also important, and Lacan to a certain extent who was the husband of Bataille's first wife after they divorced. (laughs) So it's very built in together. That idea of desire as access to some sort of authentic experience beyond or beneath the social self uh, traverses those influential figures. Yeah, so let's let's mm. move on from there to May '68 itself. I mean, we we won't go into the events of May '68 because, as I said earlier, listeners can go back to my interview with Mitch Abador. Can you maybe just talk uh, briefly about how May '68 specifically fed into sort of like queer and feminist liberatory politics? Mm. I mean, in many ways, it didn't initially. Figures like Hockenheim, who becomes a really crucial, as I said, figure of gay liberation. If he was at all involved in it, he was involved in it as first as a kind of um, orthodox Marxist-Leninist, part of a number of those groups, and then as a Maoist. There was a group called the the Revolt for Pederast Action Committee, who during the kind of crucial moments of revolt at the Sorbonne, went around putting up posters, many of them with phrases from Jean Genet on them. Um, But they were almost immediately taken down by many of the students groups who didn't want to be associated with homosexuality. I think it's also important to say that um, the only uh, the, the really out figures like uh, Cocteau but also there's another figure called Andre Baudry who had started a magazine and group called um, Arcadie they were very much associated with the respectable bourgeois culture. So he's the equivalent of those American homophile movements, which 
argued for homosexuality as a an illness to be tolerated, but it doesn't stop you being a respectable member of society. And they would organise these tea dances where you could only attend if there was a certain number of inches between you and your partner that were dancing. You had to wear a tie, absolutely. And so, you know, in many ways he's a very important figure because on the one hand he galvanised groups like the Revolt for Pederastic Action Committee and um, who wanted to argue for the radicality of homosexuality or, or, or non-normative sexualities. But also, um, he's an important figure in as much as he's one of the reasons, potentially, he was also a friend of many major politicians and cultural figures. He's one of the other reasons why homosexuality had, in some ways, a, a, a bad name or an association with tradition, Greek love. So, so I think he's important. I think one thing we've not mentioned as well is gay women. We didn't mention, for example, Stein, Gina Barnes and Colette, who were also, um, again, equally ambivalent figures. But I think it's important to mention because it was out of the women's movement and it was gay women who really kick-started the um, radical uptake of 68. So initially, that first flowering of movements after 68, like the Revolt Pederast Action Committee, were very, very short-lived and were generally rejected by the other protest movements, the workerist protest movements. But um, there was this anti-normative strain within May 68 that wasn't necessarily associated too closely with Marxism that just simply called for the forbidden to forbid, so the ending of all restrictions, that um, one mustn't have norms, one mustn't have prohibitions. And that really allowed for the opening up of a discussion of desire and of sexuality, um, but it was really from the women's movement that and in the shadow of things like Stonewall in America and the beginning of the gay liberation movement over there, that you get certain radical lesbians who start to um, found an organisation really crucial called uh, the Front for Homosexual Revolutionary Action. It was initially almost entirely women, or in fact it may have been entirely women. And they're really crucial moments alongside the publishing in two of the uh, Huey Newton speech that I mentioned already, which then opens up the way for two and other revolutionary papers to start publishing more on homosexuality. The other thing they do is this group of lesbians storm a radio programme at RTL with the title Homosexuality, a Painful Problem. This is a, you know, a, a national um, radio programme, and of course the authorities, authorities they've got to talk to, there's not a single homosexual, there's a bishop, there's a man of state, I think there's you know, somebody from a bank, and these lesbians storm it and say, we've had enough of this, they even scream things like, down with daddy's homosexuality, which refers to RKD and this homophile movement, and they want to argue that homosexuality isn't a painful problem. It's nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, it's a gift. And those, the, those are the really galvanising moments, and they come out of the women's movement, but they don't come... They come much later, so that occurs in 71, the um, New Huey Newton in 1970. Before that, there's just this kind of rumbling, a number of self-organised groups, but which don't necessarily... Um, have much of a platform within the general protest movement of that time.
Just to set a little bit more of the context sure. for our listeners, I think, you know, what we're talking about here is a largely French phenomenon yeah. with perhaps some relationship with a handful of figures in Italy, one in particular, Mario Miele, who we're going to come back to in a bit. It's not really, you know, you don't really get this sort of relationship in the US or the UK so much between kind of queer movements, art and culture, and kind of wider radical politics doesn't really exist in quite the same way, nor quite in West Germany, because there's, you know, much more of a revolt against their parents' generation. So you get the Krautrock movement, the new German cinema, some quite interesting things happening in West German theatre in particular in the late 60s, early 70s. You do get the presence, of course, of Rainer Werner Fassbinder and Rosa von Praunheim in the new German cinema, who are both quite spiky very confrontational figures you know so there's this sense of this kind of revolutionary atmosphere that lasts maybe for sort of two or three years at the absolute most before all that energy has to kind of go somewhere obviously the 1970s are a famously difficult decade particularly in west germany and uh, especially in italy of course the second half of the 1970s in italian politics are a very complicated uh, time indeed but the same is true for france as well i think you mentioned marcel Duhandieu mm. earlier mm. and uh, there's an interesting line from him yeah. on the 68 generation isn't there yeah, no, he said something. I mean, I can't remember it exactly. Maybe you have it, but he published, but he also uh, supposedly screamed at um, out of his window at the writing students that they would all be bankers and men of state soon enough. And unfortunately, not for the reasons that he would have, um, although he was defending that, uh, yes, that would ha- happen for many. Um, that this, this anti-normative flowering would soon... Um, peter out into a kind of in many for for certain figures associated with it you know um this uh, rejection of prohibitions would become a license towards bourgeois self-indulgence in many ways so um i should be able to have what i want not necessarily thinking in terms of collective politics and that's one of the tensions i think that's really peculiar within france um also because this um you were saying about some of the intellectual context for this. You know, we've talked a little bit about ideas of transgression. Um, the idea of an anti-normative politics of desire is also in the intellectual air at the same time. In figures like Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari, um, René Scherer and Michel Foucault. So there is this also this intellectual um, and not particularly... Um, orthodox notion of the meeting of Freud and Marx that's wanting to argue for um, wanting to argue against prohibitions and restrictions Um, uh, so I think that anti-normative strain of 68 is what allows this peculiar flourishing of gay liberation in the very way it does there, but in a way that makes it have a very vexed relationship to Marxism and collective politics, which you don't get in, say, I mean, a figure like Rosa von Praunheim is very influenced by the Frankfurt School and very influenced by figures like Herbert Marcuse. And there's very much a sociological streak in there, which is quite pragmatist in many ways. It's not aligned to the very, very bizarre theories of design that Deleuze and, and Gretary talk about. 
Jalibis and Qatari and Michel Foucault, of course, are figures who have been extensively discussed mm. uh, elsewhere, and I don't think we should spend an awful lot of time on them. <laughs> Both of them were influenced by two of the sort of artist theorists mm, mm. that you make very prominent in mm. the exhibition. Mm. Uh, both of whom we've already mentioned, uh, Guy Hockenham and uh, Pierre Klosowski. Mm. So I wondered if you'd like to, maybe, uh, I think chronologically, uh, Klosowski comes first. Mm. So mm-hmm. maybe you'd like to introduce mm. Klosowski's key text and talk about the transition in the early 70s to this sort of, you know, mixture of activism and theory. Mm-hmm. Sure, I can I can try to do that. Um, Klosowski is a very interesting figure because he was already in- incredibly old by um, the, or, or at least much older than the um, uh, student and activist generation in Paris at the time. He was also a figure that was very much associated with Bataille, so he'd been part of um, Bataille's group, Akephali or Acephali, however you pronounce it, um, a kind of uh, secret society. But um, Klosowski is also a figure that's much misunderstood. He was a visual artist and also philosopher and novelist, and many of his works drew on the Marquis de Sade. And for that reason, many people associate him with a certain libertine attitude and a very similar position to that of Bataille of endorsing the idea of a certain Um, revolutionary potential in desire. And what Klosowski does, and the reason he's celebrated by Foucault and Deleuze and Gussery and Jean-Francois Lyotard also acknowledges his influence on his book Libidinal Economy. It's particularly for one book published in 1970 called uh, Living Currency. And really the argument there is against um, the repressive hypothesis of desire, very much associated with figures like Herbert Marcuse, but also with that first flourishing of the forbidden to forbid, which is the argument that um, desire is this polymorphous force that simply needs to be unleashed in order for moralism, society, um, states to be undone. And Klosowski is attempting to counter that idea, but also to find an answer to the question of why do people seemingly support systems that uh, oppress them? Why do people vote in favour of oppressive systems? Or why do they participate in capitalism, even when the surface promises that, you know, we're all just unlucky millionaires, or if you work hard enough, you know, when those things are um, so manifestly untrue and people are aware of them, you know, why do people support that system? And what he argues is very, very interesting. It's that fundamentally capitalism isn't something that inhibits affect or the life of the emotions. It's a product of them. It's a very idiosyncratic book that goes all the way back to ancient Rome to argue that the making of images, the making of simulacra, figures of the gods, were themselves um, useful tools. They become invested with... um, the uh, desires and phantasms of the individual, but they also show us who we are. And they are no different from other types of useful objects or commodities. So essentially, he's trying to argue that selfhood 
that that desire itself always looks towards an object, but also that desire, as we understand it, is based on a value system. So you only know how much you and how intensely you desire, depending on its re um, its relative intensity in a kind of marketplace of desires. He's really trying to reverse that idea that all you have to do is end normative restrictions on desire and therefore your end forms of oppression he's saying that actually desire is always tending towards its own objectification always tending towards some sort of valuation and so he's he's flying the ointment but he's also the trigger along with somebody like Jacques Lacan for thinking about how if you want to undo the forces of capitalism and also the forces of normative culture, you have to totally rethink ideas of identity. So that's where he's really crucial. This idea that the marketplace is a product of individual desires and therefore constructs the subject. I mean, that's something that you don't necessarily get to the same extent in the Anglo-American context. And that certainly is why it's influential on figures like Deleuze, and why Lacan is interesting for Althusser and other Marxist theorists is this idea of the production of subjectivity and that um, the forces of capitalism are involved in the production of subjectivity, in the production of cultural identity, but also we as individuals are deeply invested in that as well. And so actually, if you want to... And produce a kind of counter-movement, a counter-culture, that means, in Deleuze's words, and um, uh, becoming schizo, it means totally decentering the self, totally giving up on notions of identity or subjective coherence, but also of a kind of desire built on ownership. So this idea, so, I mean, that's a huge bundle of ideas to throw in there, but that's why Klosowski's... Um, important is this question of the relationship between desire and identity and um, its inhibition. This theoretical discourse mm. moves on, I think, soon after Klosowski publishes Living Currency, mm. Guy Hockenheim's crucial work mm. appears. Mm. And, you know, Hockenheim, again, has a, a slightly different theory of mm. liberating desire, mm. and particularly of the democratising potential of anal sex. Yes. I don't really know Hockenheim's mm. work very well, so maybe you'd like to expand on that and kind of a bit on how it relates to Klosowski before him. Yeah, certainly. Hockenheim doesn't, to my knowledge, particularly directly mention Klosowski, but in as much as he was part Hockenheim, along with René Scherer, his former lover and philosophy teacher, they were both members of the radical University of Vincennes, which was headed by Deleuze and Foucault. They were all part of a group. And so Hockenheim was very much influenced, I think, by Klosowski via Deleuze. There is a few essential things to say, one of which is that Hockenheim's most famous book, Homosexual Desire, has in many ways a misleading title because Hockenheim's wanting to argue that, in fact, desire has no identity. And in many ways, he argues that homosexual desire 
or homosexual identity is as much a form of kind of false liberation, it's a form of repression as any other, because the organising of the polymorphous, the heterogeneous notion of desire into an identity is one of the ways, one of the Oedipal formations in which society organises our desires. So, if Deleuze and Hockenheim share this idea that um, desire is a kind of heterogeneous and protean force and a force of grouping, so it's not individuated, but it's one of the ways we plug it into and join with one another, um, capitalism um, doesn't want that to happen. So it invents the model of the family and it invents the model of identity as a way to kind of restrict our desires so that we can carry on as good citizens so that we can reproduce norms but yeah Hockenheim's particularly interesting because he argues on the one hand he's making this argument for the heterogeneous of desire of desire and also for the democracy of anal sex on the other hand he's one and also arguing for the fiction of homosexual desire and he also wants to kind of argue for some special status for homosexual desire it's notable, and he's very much criticised for this, that there is no discussion of lesbianism in that book and in many of his subsequent books. And um, The idea that lesbianism might be some radical means of undermining the patriarchy and capitalism is unacknowledged. The other thing to say is that, um, that Michael Moon, in his introduction to the very recent translation of Homosexual Trouble, he's very careful to point out that Hockenheim's central word is not homophobia, but sexism. That gay liberation and the, this philosophy of desire within his work is seen as anti-patriarchal. But homosexual anal desire is particularly anti-patriarchal. On the one hand, the anus is not gendered. So in a certain sense, it's more democratic. It, it, it also, in some ways, it can be thought of, and, and Hockenheim wants to argue this, outside of the idea of receptivity and penetration, because, of course, the body that penetrates can also be receptive in homosexual desire. So in many ways, he's trying to argue, as Crevel did earlier, for this liberation of the body from um, uh, a kind of heterosexual understanding of its organs... And so unseating the idea of the phallic as the thing that, um, as the central signifier, the most important signifier in, and here we come into the realm of Lacanian theory, the idea that the phallus is, which is both the penis, but also its symbolization in culture, is the determining factor of our culture. It's what allows the language of the symbolic order, social interactions to be determined by male-female difference with the e emphasis on the masculine. Gay anal sex suddenly allows the opening up of a space of penetration in the man, but also beyond that, the idea that desire might not actually be linked to reproduction in any way. And, and in fact, Hockenheim then goes on to make very outlandish claims that there is, in fact, another character of the anal orgasm altogether, you know, that's a different... But it's also important to say that um, Hockenheim's focus is not on 
the homosexual individual, he talks about things like anal groupings. So the idea is that you would have um, sexual practices as a penetrable subject or a porous subject that plugged you into groups of others that weren't based on one individual penetrating the other, one individual dominating the other. So I hope that gives some idea of the ways in which the body or the anal has this very strange space as being, on the one hand, the privileged site of um, uh, resistance against the patriarchy, but also in a weird way gives a kind of essentialism via the back door in which gay men are suddenly, you know, on top again, if you like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I want to very mm. quickly move the conversation mm. to Mario Mielli mm. before we back to Hockenheim and Lionel Soukaz, mm. who is the other kind of key figure here. Mm. I think Mielli is just worth mentioning in passing for two reasons. Like, one is that he's working in Italy and writing in Italian rather than in French, so he's not really directly part of this discourse and in mm. fact the volume elements of homosexual critique which has just been retranslated and republished in english by pluto as towards a gay communism you know this is merely his like undergrad thesis so i don't know how directly it really links into these movements he's writing in the sort of mid to late 70s so he's a few years later than mm. hockenham and, and klosowski but what Mielli shares with Hockenheim is a kind of belief in the liberatory power of being penetrated, of anal sex in that way. But where he departs from Hockenheim, where he differs, is a kind of belief, uh, Mielli calls it kind of transsexuality, but I think it's more a sort of pandrogyny and pansexuality that Mielli believes can be unleashed if we get through this sort of quite patriarchal what he calls educastration mm. i want to do a whole edition of sweet 212 extra with you and uh, one or two other guests talking about mielli mm. because i think he's he's worthy of, of, of a whole show but i mean i think that's a really good mention that mm. is because i know there is some tension between hockenheim and this kind of gay male and quite masculinist essentialism which in some ways recalls a lot of more homo-nationalist movements of the 1930s, mm. which leads to a lot of tension between Hockenheim and the sort of radical lesbian groups that you talked about. Mm. I mean, definitely. I think in, in Hockenheim's defence, he talks the talk of a kind of polysexuality, but it's not then followed through in the theoretical models that he puts forth, nor was it followed through in practice either. I mean, so it's important to say that the Front for Homosexual Revolutionary Action, which had begun as primarily women, he was one of the first male members, he then became its figurehead, partly because he'd written this book that was published in 1972, so he had this rapid rise over two years. But he also has instituted the idea that this um, revolutionary group would be... It met at the uh, Ecole des Beaux-Arts in Paris and it had a dark room in it. The meetings involved people turning up and they would go off and have sex together and there was this idea of practising sexual groupings. But on a very practical level, what happened was it became a gay male cruising ground. And um, the lesbians gradually got, and, and other queer women gradually got um, pushed out. Another group to mention talking about transgender identity and also about effeminacy is the Gasolines, which were really important, but again, very short-lived group that would turn up at the front's meetings, but it would also turn up 
at a May Day march, you know, other protests held by the left in drag, shouting both against the masculinity of the gay liberation movement and against a certain strain of Marxism or left-wing uh, activism that didn't want to be associated with the feminine in that way. And they're really interesting because they were tolerated under the idea that we shouldn't have any restrictions, but they were always, for example, made to march at the back of the uh, protest. So they were tolerated, but within limits. So yeah, Hockenheim certainly talked in terms of polysexuality, talked about homosexuality as repressive, but then yes, privileges the masculine, privileges the male body in many ways, and also in practice created spaces that were largely given over to gay male desire, and that caused one of the splittings um, that you d discussed that happened in different ways in Germany and Britain between the lesbian and the gay movement. The other, I think, important split that occurs is around the figure of René Scherer, who was the sort of bridging figure between Klosowski, Deleuze and Hockenheim, uh, and the question of um, consent in sex. So that might be worth talking about. Let's come on to that in a yeah, moment. Sure. I just want to round off this section by talking about Lionel Soukaz, who mm. is the other kind of key figure in your exhibition, mm. and particularly the film that Sukas and Hockenhead made together, or the television work, I mm. think, Ras Depp, mm -hmm. which was, you know, a kind of history of homosexuality, mm. its title playing on that word ped that you mm. mentioned earlier. So I wonder if you'd like to maybe just talk a bit about that work. Yeah, I mean, that's a really crucial work. Um, in many ways, it came also, the other figure there is Michel Foucault, so Foucault had not, I believe, or was just about to at the time that uh, Rastep came out in the mid-70s, was working on his three or four volume series of books of the history of sexuality. One of the crucial arguments in that is that sexualities are in many ways invented by systems of biopolitics. So that is by the state that is by medical institutions, that there's this idea within it that in the 19th century that there is invented the figure of the heterosexual and the homosexual. And prior to that, you simply had desires and acts. So, you know, one became a sodomite because you had sodomized somebody, but that was simply a crime for which you would be um, labelled. It wouldn't tell anything about some essential self. There was no depth psychology to your desire. And that's one of the key arguments within Foucault and so one of the aims within uh, Restep. It's a particularly ambivalent um, film work. On the one hand, it's supposedly this document, it's a piece of propaganda for gay liberation. On the other hand, it's sort of arguing there is no such thing, that even the notion of gay, even the notion of homosexual is an invention of the state that we ought to throw off and get rid of. And in fact, the last chapter, it's in three sections, one of which is sort of looking at history and antiquity, a middle section which looks at um, present day, and then there's a look to the future, if you like, where a, I can't remember his name now, but I think it might be Peter de Rome, a very famous gay male porn star in France plays a naive American visiting Paris and Guy Hockenheim or someone similar plays the part of the young gay liberation radical and on the one hand they have this conversation 
talking about the kind of repressive freedoms that um, gay people have have bought into. So this idea that if you just have your gay bars and you're gay, and if you're tolerated, you know, that that itself is liberation, as long as you have the right to love who you want. But maybe that's also a way in which the state can organise you, survey you, profit from you. And also being tolerated, (laughs) is that really what you want to look for? So in many ways, denounces some of the central ideas of right and recognitions so it's a very ambivalent and ambiguous piece that um, on the one hand galvanises the idea of a liberatory movement and on the other hand speaks against the notion of gay rights itself there's one other line of Sukas film, isn't there? Mm. Ix. I don't know if you'd like to talk a little more about that as well. Yeah, Ix is a later work, and it's much more, in many ways, um, Rustep is not um, really Sukas's work. It's definitely a collaboration. Ix is a dual screen. It has almost no narrative or kind of coherent argument. It presents images of... Um, jacking up and uh, gay male pornography alongside um, images of uh, atom bombs exploding. It was designed, the X of the title is the XXX of the censor who had earlier censored a number of um, uh, Sukas's film, including the um, pederastic film Boyfriend and others. And so it was largely made to kind of move against the censors. It's a film, you know, there's scenes of fisting, there's scenes of subsexual violence within it. But it's an interesting film. Uh, in my exhibition in Paris, I've included a, a more recent work called Amour, which is made actually out of offcuts of X, which shows moments of playfulness, of tenderness, of softness that could not be included in that earlier radical moment. And there's certainly a sense in which um, something like X, which was designed to be an oppositional document, shows the limits of that kind of oppositional struggle in as much as it presented, again, a particularly masculinist idea of gay male sex as somehow aggressive, antagonistic, more... Um, militant than the straight militant man more you know that you take it like a man in many respects Um, and this later work uh, is full of parodic reflection on the kinds of playful non-organized non-hierarchical sexuality that was spoken about at that earlier moment but actually in the struggle to be oppositional, in the struggle to be transgressive, fell by the wayside in practice. What we're coming on to now, I mean, both these film works, X and Last Step, mm. that we've just discussed, appear towards the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, which is sort of when this queer culture, this queer sort of left-wing political mm. project, starts to collapse in all sorts of different ways. Mm. And I think there are two quite big reasons for that. One of them is the uh, accession of Francois Mitterrand to the um, French presidency. What comes with that is a kind of incorporation of some aspects of French communist culture and the PCF and the sidelining of others, uh, and also the AIDS crisis. Mm. But I think we should come on to those in a moment because Mm. there are some issues within this awkward alliance of different types and conceptions of queer culture that I think precipitate 
that collapse in these very difficult circumstances. So you've already mentioned pretty big and important disagreements between the sort of gay and lesbian wings of this movement around issues around consent. Mm. So I wondered if you could uh, expand on that a bit. Yeah, certainly. So I think, um, of course, as we know, both in North America and um, across Europe and in the UK, pedophile, pro-pedophile movements were very uh, much a part of the gay liberation movement um, in all of those cultures, also part of the left-wing movement. But they hold, again, this place of theory within uh, France is very particular, and they hold very theoretically central position. So René Scherer was a um, big... uh, He's an anarchist philosopher. He was also a major proponent of early utopian socialist figures like Charles Fourier. And he... But as I mentioned earlier... Hockenheim had studied under Scherer in school, used to have philosophy lessons in school as a teenager, and um, Scherer was his teacher and became his lover. And Scherer was also his entree into this bigger philosophical world and how he met figures like Deleuze. But it's through Scherer that this idea of the anti-Oedipal and the notion of the family... I mean, it's so important, this idea that the family unit is the threshold between society and the turbulence of our inner desires. And so this fixation upon the family as and the school, um, which is why, again, that galvanising moment of 68, which came out of university protests, protests against systems of education that were seen to be repressive, that were seen to be um, associated with an old guard, um, those were fertile ground for uh, figures like Scherer and also Duver, um, who wanted to critique the school and the family as, in many ways, repressing the volatile and potentially revolutionary desires that within all of us, but particularly within a child, and sublimating them into identities, into grown-up sexualities and subjectivities, but also to completely desexualize relationships. So, you know, Scherer writes this famous book called Emile Perverti, which is a parody of Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Emile. You know, Emile, a treatise on ed- education, uh, the culmination of which is that he grows up to be a respectable man and marries a woman. And um, suddenly, um, Scherer's arguing, well, actually, schools are sexual places, you know. But what happens there is in order to be obedient, the um, incoherence of desire has to be sublimated. So the relationship between parent and child, but also between teacher and student, has to be one which sex is taken out of the equation. Otherwise, you wouldn't take instruction. You would just plug in. And he's arguing against that. But I think one of the really problematic aspects of that is the role of the mother in it. So the mother, crucially, becomes this figure of... um, First of all, she is internalised her own oppression. Well, I mean, potentially no argument there in many ways. But also, she is the gatekeeper to the child's sexuality, and she is the one who organises it. And so you'll get a figure like Tony Duver, in all seriousness, saying things like, um, in his book Against Sex Education, so it's a book that argues that sex education, you know, supposedly 
liberating the child is actually just a way of telling them how to desire properly. In this book, he says, if there were a Nuremberg for trials committed during peacetime, nine mothers out of ten would be called to stand, you know, um, to give testimony. Wow. You know, yeah. that the, the mother is a, a war criminal in restricting the de- desires of the child. And this thesis is very much supported by figures like um, Foucault. I mean, there are, I should add, you know, within the space of this discussion, we're not able to go into too many nuances. There are differences between a figure like Scherer and a figure like Duver. Duver talks for the total ending of any restrictions, of age restrictions on child sexuality. Scherer isn't quite the same. He's definitely a theorist and he's not um, necessarily predatory in the way that other figures within that movement are. But certainly that misogyny, but also that argument, and again it comes back to the fact of 68 being anti-normative, the idea that, um, you know, norms and restrictions are inherently bad. So if the school imposes those, then it's Oedipal in the service of capital. If the mother imposes those, then it's Oedipal. So consent, the idea of restrictions on child sexuality, all of those must be done away with. And that's really central to those arguments and becomes a bone of contention with the feminist movement, which, of course, has begun to have this very elaborate discussion around rape and issues of consent there. And so the question of whether the child can consent gets packaged into the discussions around rape. These are all obviously very complicated and very difficult issues that you know, would have led to splits anyway. But as I've already kind of alluded to, there are two kind of massive challenges that I don't think any movement really would have been able to survive. And one, like I said, was Mitterrand sort of coming to power on this quite sort of radical socialist platform. And he then finds the sort of economic elements, which he's drawn into this platform, are sort of immediately blocked by kind of international capital. And I think to some extent, the European Union, you know, this huge capital flight, He takes on the more sort of economic unionist aspects of left politics and, you know, these more sort of queer and feminist um, parts of the movement are not really incorporated. And then, of course, they have another huge challenge, which is the impact of the AIDS crisis, which, you know, forces a sexual conservatism because, you know, anti-queer kind of right wing, uh, you know, in lots of places sees upon the AIDS crisis or celebrate the AIDS crisis, indeed, as happens in the US and the UK. So it forces a more sort of conservative sexual culture. And, of course, lots of people die. Uh, mm. Foucault, notably, you know, ignored know. advice from friends to be careful and died in 1984. Guy Hockenham dies of an AIDS-related illness in 1988. Uh, Mario Miele actually commits suicide in the early 80s. He doesn't quite live to see, see the impact of the AIDS crisis on his type of politics. I mean, just to interject, which is, I think, the other effect, in addition to the death and also the sexual conservatism, is that um, the emphasis shifts very suddenly to the need for rights and recognitions, i.e. that gay relationships need to be recognised in order for visitation rights in hospitals, that gay rights have to be recognised 
in order for people to get access to medications, that this crisis has to be recognised as hitting a particular community. And so many of those utopian aims of the gay liberation movement and or the sexual liberation movement more broadly, which was to decategorize sexuality, to de-center the subject, there's much less emphasis on those. And suddenly you get the shift again to rights and recognitions and to some sort of notion of gay identity versus sexuality and desire as these radical forces that are going to shift society as a whole. So less yeah. of an emphasis on art yeah. and even less on activism and more on kind of advocacy, which is a quite different thing. Amidst the AIDS crisis in France, something that you've, you've mentioned with regards to the Forbidden to Forbid exhibition and the collapse of this type of politics is a kind of move towards ethics as a key organising principle of the LGBT movement. Mm-hmm. So amidst that shift away from art and activism towards advocacy, mm-hmm. there's also a divorcing from the sort of wider ideology or sort of socialist uh, movement, which, you know, I mean, there's always been an argument that liberated desire is not necessarily good for a sort of a left-wing political project you know you have a you have an ideology that's a, a, you know agreed through sort of theory and praxis and often desire can kind of undercut that desire doesn't always act in the sort of quote-unquote politically correct way and this is used to justify some right-wing positions so i wonder if you could maybe discuss that process um you know you've already mentioned Renel Camus briefly and I think you, in the exhibition, you also sort of draw a line between that and uh, Michel Houellebecq. I mean, certainly that's in, in the introduction, that you might have a figure... I mean, Camus is a very, very interesting model. And one thing to sort of interject there is that idea of a, sh- a shift from revolutionary politics towards ethics is something that uh, I really want to attribute to Julian Borg. Um, he wrote, he's written the book with that as the title on the sort of long um, decade after 68, um, because it's both a shift that happens politically, but also one that happens in theory. So you get this kind of Levinasian ethical turn in the thought of um, people like uh, Jacques Derrida, um, Elaine Sixou and others, as well as in the political movement. But yeah, you know, a, a figure like Renaud Camus is... Already in the 1970s, you know, there was never some moment where he was the epitome of progressiveness. But for example, um, considering that he's one of the best known gay writers in France at the moment, he's also just as well known now for being a major supporter of Front National and the author of The Great Replacement and um, very much like figures like Pim Fortune and this is something that's explored in Ori Ashery's work in the exhibition and um, uh, that she looks at the ways in which discourses of liberation, discourses of freedom um, of, of um, the ending of prohibitions as much serve the interests of the far right as they do of the left. So Renaud Camus essentially is arguing, you know, well, in the 60s, we just got rid of all of the restrictions of Catholicism. So what have we got now? These Muslims coming in with their Sharia law that wants to restrict our liberties once again. 
and uh, so argues in a very xenophobic way, you know, but of course it's, it's the age-old idea that one person's freedom is another person's unfreedom, that, you know, somebody's freedom depends upon another person's lack of it. A figure like Welbeck's really interesting. In many ways, Welbeck is, you know, he's a repugnant <laughs> figure, but he was a big critic. His, his first novels, at least... Were came out of criticism of the gay of the sexual liberation era, and it's based in a kind of materialist pessimism. That is that um, you know all of these radical theories of the body and of sexual desire are based upon the desirability of the body on bodily pleasures. But the one thing that bodies tend towards is um, decrepitude and decay and so what happens when that generation gets older you're reduced to a form of exploitative sex tourism what happens to the radicality of desire when you are no longer desirable and so part of his argument is that actually all of those discourses of desire have created an an even more commodified culture of youth and beauty in many ways um, the irony being that almost all of his books are based on this search for young women that he can have sex with because those offer him moments of respite from this terrible confrontation of his aging male body so he and himself is somehow imbricated in the very politics that he's criticizing i mean that seems like an interesting place to conclude the discussion of literature Mm. i think maybe we should just sort of conclude by talking about the ways and obviously this is something that happened in the uk as well the um, centrism, and I mean specifically centrism rather than liberalism because they're related projects but they're not the same. The way centrism picked up LGBT rights, obviously this happened a lot in Britain, some of the conversations around Section 28 in the late 80s in particular, which was a sort of a struggle that was ignored by the Labour right at the time or kind of opted out of and largely led by the Labour left and then in the sort of late 90s, early noughties, the sort of centrist takeover of the Labour Party kind of claimed that you know, actually they were the, the progressives who were sort of picking up on LGBT rights at the same time as they were pursuing, you know, an incredibly anti-immigrant um, foreign policy. Mm. And, you know, there's a similar kind of um, disjuncture in, in France where, like, as you said earlier, there's this kind of secular tradition and this sort of post-68 project of liberating desire both of which sort of come together in sort of opposing Muslim population in France. So another way in which centrism sort of tends to sort of lean towards the right, and particularly the far right, is by sort of trying to accommodate a lot of its racist and particularly Islamophobic um, aspects of this. I mean, is this a process that that you've observed in France as well? Mm. Oh, Um, for sure. I mean, you know, one shouldn't be too broad brush with this, which is that, of course, you know, there isn't some total shift to the right. But certainly that notion of, well, that that shift, first of all, to rights and recognitions, but also towards ethics, whereby, you know, desire is not part of some broader project, means that people, for example, vote for you know, supposedly centrist figures like Macron or accommodate the commercialisation of pride and gay rights on the basis that it's allowing oneself a place at the table. In terms of the racism, though, however, um, certainly that's a huge problem. In fact, as I mentioned before, you know, Michael Moon is very clear to point out that 
in the early 70s, the term was not homophobia, but it was sexism, sexism as a form of racism. And there was an attempt to kind of decolonize sexuality that was very much part of that initial gay liberation movement. You get critiques of sex tourism very early on. So there's very much this idea in the early 70s that just expressing your sexuality isn't a way out of oppression, it can be a way of oppressing other minoritarian race subjects. But much later on, in the um, 90s, as things have shifted towards rights and recognitions, as people are getting a place at the table, the threat of that being taken away by Muslims, that threat of it being taken away by other restrictive minority groups becomes a defining principle in many ways of young LGBT voters. You know, it's, it's, it's very shocking um, how many of them vote for the right on that basis, on the fear of some kind of coming repression. I think, you know, a likely development in French politics is that, you know, Macron's uh, approval ratings very quickly drop through the floor after and you know you look at the the level of apathy in voting for him even against Marine Le Pen against you know an out and out fascist the margin of victory in the final round the um, the so-called Republican clause where the final two candidates go through to a kind of runoff uh, which was originally introduced to keep the Communist Party from taking power immediately after the war but has also been a bulwark against the fascist takeover of France you know the turnout to vote for Macron was very very low mm, in that. Mm. Uh, worryingly low. That is important to mention actually something I should have mentioned before but it, for example in the mid to late 90s you get a figure like Guillaume de Stan de Stan famous as one of the kind of early proponents of barebacking as a kind of radical practice but he's very much you know his late diaries talk about his anxiety that he's becoming far right and he's anxious about this but he can really become a figure for that idea of sexual transgression but that he's wanting to protect his liberty so that shift from a notion of sexual transgression that isn't associated with the libertine after the slide through AIDS and into the 90s becomes absolutely that. It's a defence of the freedoms of the libertine towards private sexual practice that feel under threat by uh, an increasingly foreign culture. And so he is an exact example of that, where the argument for barebacking, the argument for sexual freedoms are individuated. They're not associated to some socialist or collective project. But I do wonder if the uh, Macron and, you know, his rather, I want to say party, I think it's more of a vehicle on Marsh, really. You know, if that performs as badly in the next presidential election as, as at the moment it looks like it might, then maybe there's some hope that a kind of rejuvenated left will take its place rather than, than something more centrist. And I would hope at this point in time that that would include big anti-racist elements and revived idea of connection between sexual radicalism and political radicalism. So maybe there's there's some hope there. Mm. I, I think so too. I certainly see that Macron and the figure of Marine Le Pen uh, are inciting, to use a Foucauldian term, a powerful counter-discourse of young queer and anti-racist activists. And hopefully, hopefully, there is some possibility of a popular platform out of the apathy with Macron. 
Well, that seems like a good place to leave it. Um, I could talk for a long time about how much I uh, loathe Emmanuel Macron, but uh, that's a conversation for another day. So, Paul, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Um, Listeners, that was the first episode of Sweet 212 Extra. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at Sweet underscore 212. The next Resonance 104.4 FM show will be guest hosted by Tom Overton on the 16th of July. Uh, as I'm currently out of the country, I'm in Kiev. I'll be doing another episode of Sweet 212 Extra from Kiev very soon. But for now, thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>